Hello and welcome to another episode of the Let's Review Podcast. I'm Adam McPartland and of course with me is Mr. Steve Bellafield. Steve, how you doing today, buddy? I'm doing okay. This whole quarantine thing has ruined my sleep schedule, but I, I'm pretty sure I'm a, a zombie at the moment. But So many of us are, but we're yeah. the lethargic zombies. We're not the crazy speed ones from World War Z. So yeah. at least it's that. Or Dawn of the Dead. Out. <laughs> you don't have to worry about outrunning the zombies. <laughs> exactly. Thank God for me, I have not been working out this quarantine. <laughs> <laughs> I have, and I've also had trouble getting to sleep. Man, I wish that there was a magic spell or something that could help me get to sleep. Oh, well, look at you with the segue. <laughs> it's almost like you know what we're talking about. It, it almost is. I have no idea what we're talking about. What are we talking about, Adam? Well, we're talking today about Harry Potter. Um, oh, right! Yeah. One of the greatest franchises ever, and somehow it's a recent film franchise that wasn't a money grab in terms of what the studio did with it. It was completely... Every movie was necessary. It was not frivolous or messed up in any way. It was done with respect for every single one of the books even if not necessarily faithful it treated the source material with respect and reverence and care unlike other franchises I know that we've talked about already and some mm-hmm. that we haven't talked about already but yeah. this is this is the one franchise that we grew up with and certainly I mean I don't know about you but that, that I, I grew up with the books and the movies and the waiting in line at the midnight premiere and for the midnight release of the books uh, I absolutely uh, like followed along with the books the movies like I I missed one of them in, in the theaters I think I missed order of the Phoenix in theaters but uh, overall I I kept up with them pretty well and I remember when Deathly Hollows the book came out like uh-huh. my my dad got like uh, I, I I know that there's not like a special edition of the book, but like it was a like it came in a case and everything, and he got four of those for for me himself, <laughs> my mom, and my sister. So <laughs> like my- we were we were very much invested in the books. <laughs> yes, my mother and I as well. That was the first time we got. I think my mo- my mother remembers getting two copies. I don't know where the second copy is. But my mother and I remember this. I remember this as well. This was the first one that, because um, every other book came out when I was like ten ish or whatever, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, and we would read them together. And my mother, just because it was kind of fun, would read them when I, when I was about to go to bed. She would read them, and I just kept making her read. <laughs> <laughs> but then for the seventh one, it was like old old hat by that point. So what we decided to do was race. And so you could finish the book faster. Actually, yeah, that's more or less what my dad and I did, yeah. <laughs> and it wasn't even close. <laughs> you won, like, I'm guessing. I'm done, and you're on chapter five. Like, <laughs> what are you doing? Good, you're man. You're working to support the family? What is wrong with you? You need to make better life choices, Ma. Oh, exactly. And the, the movies themselves, like, we, we love them so much. Uh, and we're going to be talking about the best of them, but unfortunately, we will also be talking about yes. the ones that, in our opinions at least, uh, did were not the, were the worst. Yeah, did not as, live as, up to the as, the heights. 
as much as the word worst can apply to a move to a movie franchise where none of them are even bad <laughs> yeah well well we, that, we will fair, clarify we will we clarify will, this yes we will clarify this number the first thing is the fantastic beasts twosome were off limits for this so yes we could not pick from those because i think if uh if we had picked from Trump those grindelwald would have been both of ours yes that was Oh god, I I saw Crimes of Grindelwald in in the theaters because uh, my girlfriend at the time wanted to see it so bad, and I just I didn't have the heart to to say that I thought it was a waste of time. <laughs> oh, Steve, you sound like me. My girlfriend at the time of the release of Breaking Dawn Part Two made me go see that with her in the theater. <laughs> oh god, <laughs> I, oh. Wanted to, I I wanted to poke my eyes out. It was awful. <sighs> And I'm just talking about the relationship. But, no. <laughs> <laughs> but Steve, so the, the, the way that I wanted to do this one, as you know, but for those listening, is that I wanted us to, when we pick the worst, describe what we meant by saying it was the worst. Did we mean it was the worst faithful, the worst made of the movies, not necessarily bad made, but worst in terms of the other seven movies that were in the franchise. Uh worst in terms of watchability worst yeah. as in least favorite so we'll start with your quote-unquote worst and why it was your worst yes well my choice of worst uh well the one that i chose for the worst was uh harry potter and the goblet of fire and the reason that I chose this one as the worst, it was really hard, especially when you chose the one that I actually consider to be one of the worst. But <laughs> uh, here's the thing. Goblet of Fire, I don't think it's a bad movie. I think it's messy. I think yes. it, yeah, it's, Goblet of Fire is, it's it's not my favorite of the books, but uh, I think it's a pretty, a pretty dang good one. And uh, it's pretty action-packed, and it has a lot of really cool stuff in there. And I don't think it translated very well to the film, because Goblet of Fire feels like a movie that was trying to go more for a Hollywood blockbuster kind of feel. Uh, and it, it ditches quite a bit of the main plot for romantic scenes, and uh, it's, it ditches a lot of like little details of the book that I thought would have been... Uh, like really neat to have in there, and I don't know the trial. The trial scenes just were not very good for for me. Like the dragon one was okay, but I don't know. I I wasn't a fan of of the the way the other two were presented. And honestly, my favorite part of the movie was uh, Brendan Gleeson as Alistair Mad Eye Moody, but. Uh, he he doesn't save it necessarily. Like it's it's not a. It, we're gonna be saying this quite a bit, but it's not a yeah, bad we have to movie. We, have to clarify. we don't want to we don't want to come off as like we're bashing the movie because we're, we're we're trying to just pick which one's yeah, bad. Exactly. Like, it's not bad. Yeah, I know. I know. It hurts. It hurts me so much to do this, but um. We love them all. We promise. Yeah. But uh, okay, so. Like I said, the Goblet of Fire just kind of feels like it is made to be more of a Hollywood blockbuster kind of movie, uh, and it goes for I want to say more style over substance approach. And 
And a lot of the movie, a lot of what should be like some of the most dramatic moments in the entire film just feel underwhelming to me. Like uh, the death of Cedric Diggory, spoilers, by the way, for a what year did yeah. this come out? 2005. I, I think I know where you're going with this. And I just want to say if you are going where I think you are, I 100% agree with you. It just, I don't know. It just doesn't have impact for me and it's a, the whole scene the whole scene at the end real or towards the end when when Voldemort shows up the final battle quote unquote the ghosts coming around and everything it just kind of kind of kills the drama for me and and it just doesn't it just doesn't work it doesn't work nearly as well and the uh it just feels like they were going for less substance from the book and less like character development and more just oh hey look at this awesome scene with a dragon or look at this scene where they're swimming around underwater which was boring as heck but <laughs> it yeah. I don't know did I go where you were thinking it was gonna go or like uh, not not really I mean kind of I certainly would would, would say that that it didn't it didn't have an emotional weight but the reason why it's twofold number one is i feel as though number one over the entire course of the movie they they don't put cedric as much in the in focus as the book does mm, yeah so it doesn't give the weight because we don't know who he is and number two it comes as such a surprise there's it's it's almost like and to be completely spoiler here there is not a single second where you're able to absorb that he's about to die that passes between Voldemort saying kill the spare and Cedric Diggory getting hit with the spell and landing on the floor Yeah, you're either, either, there's no time to absorb that he's about to die and we don't even really know who he is except that he seems like kind of a good guy except for the fact that he was kind of a jerk to Harry for a good while until Harry decided to help him with the with the dragons yeah like, <laughs> oh oh you're gonna help me with the thing okay so all right well you help me i'll help you so it's more of a tit for tat than we're actually friends here and that he's actually a good guy that would be what i would say to that number two is um i again 100 agree they gloss over the second two trials they don't really get into the they don't get into the um into the seaweeds with the mermaids and they don't get into the the idea of the labyrinth tests your mind and makes you question reality and question yourself and go to all these different dark corners of your mind and it doesn't really do a good job of that it just has crumb is bewitched and it turns Fleur into this weepy sad crying little character and that's not who she is in the book at all yeah exactly and furthermore i mean if, if, if you need any more proof even in the seventh movie she's taken the polyjuice potion to appear as harry and they met once yeah like this is not who this who this girl is that it's so so i i agree with what you're saying that it's it's not exactly fleshed out the proper way for what I think is the longest book of the series if not the longest and certainly the second longest it would have to be 
but um, that I mean that's a, a plausible reason that's a plausible reason yeah. why because it was so long they had to cut so much out but at the same time it's not really a good enough excuse to completely destroy the plot and also get rid of the entire house elf plot that happens in that fourth book yeah also i want to point out that uh harry potter and the goblet of fire uh first off it is not the longest book apparently the longest harry potter book is order of the phoenix order? yeah yeah but also the goblet of fire film is directed by mike newell who was a newcomer to the uh to this style of directing i think and you can really tell uh, he his previous works include Four Weddings and a Funeral, oh, Donnie Brasco, <laughs> um, and the film he directed right before this was uh, Mona Lisa Smile, and then he directs Harry Potter, <laughs> and it just kind of feels like a weird shift in tone, and it uh. seems kind of like he read like a Cliff's Notes version of the book. And, did, and not even the whole clip. Yeah, he just skipped chapters. Yeah, and so I get the feeling that that Mike Newell didn't know how to direct for uh, a Harry Potter uh, film. So, which is entirely possible, absolutely. Yeah, and, and I, to be fair, I, I will say I give him credit for being a newcomer and doing as good a job as he did. Yeah, because he still did a good job. It's just he did bad, comparatively speaking. Yeah, to the rest of the series. Yeah, but exactly. I, that's number one, and number two, and this is where I'm gonna, I'm going to slightly deviate from what we've done in the past here, Steve, is that in both of our opinions, even if it's not what we agree is the best movie, certainly the best director to have been employed during any film of the series happened to direct the movie that came right before this one. So when you're going right after Alfonso Cuaron, mm -hmm. you're going to be at a huge disadvantage. Yes, you are. <laughs> and so I'm going to use this as a segue here to go into your favorite of the movies because I want to I want to compare the two in terms of well, basically, I want I want to say what do you think would have happened had Cuaron stayed on. And then we can go into your favorite Ooh. movie and discuss that one. Well, uh, Alfonso Cuaron is, like you say, a fantastic director. And it actually kind of is interesting to me that he directed uh, Prisoner of Azkaban before Children of Men. But we'll get to, we'll get to Prisoner of Azkaban. Uh, I think if he had stayed on, Goblet of Fire had the potential to be the best of the Harry Potter films. Uh, it, he, I think he probably wanted to go on and do something else, something of his own. Uh, but and so that's why he ended up going on to Children of Men. But um, it's I don't know. It's tough to it's tough to say exactly what would have happened. But I think it would have been much better directed. I think it would have matched tone to Prisoner of Azkaban, which one of the things we'll talk about with that is that it does a great job of shifting the the tone of the films uh, from like more kids movies to a much more mature kind of theme and it could have really uh, <clears throat> he could have probably uh, done that 
like continued that tone change more uh, gracefully. And I think he would have done the character development of various characters much better than Mike Newell ended up doing. Alrighty. I mean, I I, I, I agree 100% that it, it had the potential to be the best if Quaron had stayed on. It's It really is a shame that, that he left after one. Yeah, but, you know, I think he wanted to fly free, little bird, you know? It's true. He did. He did a good job with Children of Men. He did an excellent job of, with uh, Children of Men. And I think in some parts of... Do you want to just uh, get to Prisoner of Azkaban then? Yeah, go to Prisoner of Azkaban, absolutely. Yeah, well, uh, I think with Children of Men, you can see, like... You can see, like, the evolved versions of some uh, filmmaking tricks that he used in uh, in Prisoner of Azkaban, which sometimes... Like, when I, when I compare Prisoner of Azkaban to, like, some of his later works, I can see, like some of his stuff like it's the early versions like especially his uh, his long take that he does so brilliantly well but he also like aside from the long take it's not his only trick he does a lot of really good visual storytelling where one of my favorite bits is uh early on in the movie where harry is talking with uh mr weasley about uh sirius black and in the frame right behind Harry is a poster of Sirius Black screaming and it it does a great job where like it kind of builds this menace but also if you know the context of like who Sirius Black actually is and like what yeah. kind of person he is then it builds to the drama because it's like he's like he's just right there if if Harry will just like like look to him and understand and on top of that, the reason that I think that Prisoner of Azkaban is the best, and it's also my favorite book in the in the series, the reason I think it's the best is because it is, I think, the best adapted, and it looks fantastic as a film, and it, like I said, it does the transition to a more adult, mature at least kind of theme. Maybe not adult, but like mature. Uh, tone, like shift in tone. Yes, because yes. the uh, the books the books came out in such in such a time in people's lives that it really kind of represented the uh, the change that people go through, like uh, growing up and realizing the world is more complex. The first two movies and the first two books, of course, but uh, let's just stick with the movies. This first two movies have very like obvious bad guys. Uh, and like, yes, there's the bait and switch in the first movie with like Snape being set up to be like a bad guy, but then it turns out to be uh, poor, poor, poor stuttering Professor Quirrell, um, <laughs> which I loved that bit. But uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> where was I? Oh yeah, so like the first two movies have pretty straight, like not straightforward exactly. Well. They both have bait and switches. One's from Snape to Quirrell, the other one's from Malfoy to Voldemort. Yeah, exactly. And Ginny, and Ginny somehow. Yeah, well, Ginny was like <laughs> what? Uh, brainwashed, basically. Well, yeah, but still, yeah. I mean, Ginny, what? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but um, but yeah, and then in the Prisoner of Azkaban, it, the plot gets more complex with the Time Turner stuff, but also the themes get more complex. You think that that uh, that um, <clears throat> Sirius Black is 
this definite bad guy and not only does he turn out to be a good guy he turns out to be the most endearing good guy in the entire uh series and um the uh the way it handles uh lycanthropy i i really like lupin's character in the movie i think he's really awesome Mm -hmm. and in the book but you know we're talking about the movies and it just has a lot of awesome filmmaking moments that build character and and deepen engagement with the plot the filmmaking pulls you in rather than as being show-offy you know uh and so that's why I think it's the best. I think it's really well adapted. I think it does the best job with the character development and it just looks fantastic and is pretty much perfect from a filmmaking standpoint. So, yeah, that's my gushing about Prisoner of Azkaban. What do you think? <laughs> uh, first, I just I just want to remember here the Prisoner of Azkaban has the excuse me, has the long shot of the Quidditch game, right? Yes, I believe so. Okay. So it's it, it's had it has that nice little shot of the formation that they run. Mm-hmm. Okay, good. Um, that is one of my favorite shots in the entire series. It's it it, it gets the rain absolutely perfect. The rain and, the, and the, the the storm and everything else about that whole scene is just gotten perfectly. Even if the scene is not overall accurate or completely accurate to the book. It, it does a good enough job that I'm not really complaining. Yeah. But that particular shot of the Gryffindors flying in formation across the Quidditch pitch has to be one of my favorites because of the cinematography and because of the colors of the costumes. It's There's very little that I can pick apart about this movie in a, a cinema, cinematographic... I, I can never pronounce mm-hmm. that word. Cinematography, from a cinematography standpoint, I can't really pick it apart. From a directing standpoint can't pick it apart and those are the two things you really need to hold up if you're going to watch a movie because that's what appears on the screen that's literally what's in chart what happens when you're looking at the screen it's those two things if those two are good then you're going to be fine with watching a movie i however always have an issue when time gets involved and time travel i find the whole time turner concept of you can only undo it if you wake up in the morning planning to use the time turner otherwise the time turner is useless to be a very flimsy excuse for time travel in this world when everything else is so incredibly fleshed out uh not only that they don't really explain that part in the movie and that's a pretty big thing to leave out because it leaves a hole the size of jupiter (laughs) in the entire series of well why didn't Gandalf just use the eagles to fly the ring to Mordor? That's that's a it's, different thing, and like I can I can explain exactly why. But it's, a but thing yeah. that it's so can I yeah. with the Harry Potter series, but they leave out the explanation, <laughs> and it leaves a gaping hole in that series I that just goes unanswered until the prequels, kind of ish. Not even that. So, will we get an explanation for the Time Turner in the Fantastic Beasts series? Who knows? Probably not if they're not if if, if they're gonna keep making movies like Crimes of Grindelwald. <laughs> but I digress. I find that plot hole to be a huge problem for the series. And as a fan of the books, I don't like the idea of time travel as it is. But flimsy excuse though it may be, it is still an excuse. 
and one that should have been presented in the movie. Because when Harry finds out that there's time travel, the first thing that I'm thinking is, can I save my dead parents? <laughs> oh my God, I can save my dead parents. That's the fir- that's his driving force for every single move he makes in the series. And that is not a question that comes up. So I find that to be a very large plot hole in the movie. Can I just... And it's unfortunate for something that really doesn't get much wrong. Can I just say, like, because, I, yeah. I would love to see a diff- an alternate version where... Harry and Hermione are turning the time turner back like for an hour and a half to get as many turns as they need to go back like 13 years. <laughs> it would be fun. It would be fun to watch. I'll tell you that. Like one. three weeks. Yeah. Like, okay. Three million. Wait, I lost count. We got to start over. Oh, <laughs> oh no. We're but yeah I mean that's that's the one gripe I have with 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 that that's really about it I will say on a couple of other notes number one I think it's the bet it's one of the two or three best directed films of the series I think there's no question that Coron is the best director that was employed by the series absolutely and we'll get to we'll get to that we'll come back to that point in a minute but the second thing is that I agree that the tone shifts in these movies, but and, and again, this comes to, ad- to faithful adaptation, I think the tone switches in the book as well. When they hit the third book, it's like, okay, well, these guys are 13 years old, it's going to be more of a teen book now, so we gotta, we got to up it a little right. bit, and and they do, and, and Rowling does a good job of that in the books, and Quaron does a fantastic job of bringing that to the screen. So I, I would I would agree with you in the terms of I think it's one of the more faithfully adapted books of the series as well. Um, it does not happen to be my favorite of the of the series. My favorite is actually Goblet of Fire, <laughs> but as, from a, from a fun standpoint, I think it's a lot of fun to watch, especially Dumbledore. Harry, did you put your name? <laughs> it also it's such a not yeah. Dumbledore moment. It's like the most. It's beautiful. Oh, man. It's the most graphic piece of we are not using Richard Harris anymore. This is Michael Gambon. Uh, he don't get up in his Which, place. you know, I, I love Michael Gambon, but, like, I gotta say, I really miss Richard Harris, and I may he rest in peace, and uh, he... He was Dumbledore. He so was. And Gambon eventually got into a groove, I think, but... Like, this was a bit of a, a jarring change, uh, especially at the time. It was. He was absolutely, because he was far younger. He had more mobility about him because, I mean, Rich Harris was a lot older. He was sick. Yes. And it's it, it's just the thing that happens when you get a new actor. You're like, oh, well, we can have fun with this. Yeah. And it's like, let's try out my shiny new toy. And... Excuse me. <laughs> And I think they, I think Coron had a, a nice hold of it in the third movie. It was uh, a lot of his wise, old, calm, sedated, but still had a booming voice yes. when he wanted to, but he wasn't running all over the place. Fourth movie, we get back into a lack of faith in adaptation of he's running all over the place and 
getting aggressive and like freaking out and like Dumbledore is not that guy. Dumbledore does not freak out. Dumbledore knows everything that's going on and he knows when somebody's lying yep. to him. So he doesn't need to grab him by the collar. He just look he just as does in the book, just look very calmly and say Harry, did you put your name in the goblet of fire? <laughs> it's just very calm because he's got that presence about him that even Snape doesn't say a word against him when when he knows it's the final word. It's like he's not gonna argue. Not even yeah, exactly. Argue. So, and, and we'll get to Snape, I'm sure, at some I point, will. how badly he was adapted for every yeah. single. Movie. I will say, like but the in the third movie, and this is my problem. With, this is my big problem with the movie. That's already no good. I just want to say this before I forget. Snape is not at all who he appears in the movie. Snape is a complete prick in the third book. He goes from being just a guy who hates Harry to this really evil, sick, sadistic, twisted piece of filth who almost poisons a frog because he doesn't like Neville and and completely undermines an entire class because, to be fair, he was ruthlessly bullied by Lupin when they went to school together and his three friends. To be completely fair, they bullied him, so I wouldn't like him either. But you have to be professional in a professional workplace. You can't just completely disregard what a teacher does and a teacher is teaching and then treat the class like they're all idiots. That's unprofessional and it's evil what he did. And that's personally my biggest problem is that that's where the adaptation of Snape goes way off the rails and he becomes this anti-hero rather than this nemesis who has a redemption moment at the end of the series. Now, what were you going to say before? No, it's okay. It's okay. I can can understand (laughs) frustration about Snape's depiction in the movie, but I think... I think overall, like the the film is greater than the any mistakes it makes. Um, I mean, I yeah. can agree with that. I just, as as someone who under, as someone who, who is now just rereading the books again, it's been quite annoying to re realize just how much Snape was softened for the screen. And it's like, it, it's not, like I said, it's not just the third book, it's all the books that softened this, this persona yeah. of his. But it's the third book where he really goes off the rails and almost, like like I said, almost poisons a frog because right. he doesn't like one of the students. Yeah. So, that's the, that's the one issue I have there, but it's, it's not enough of an issue where I'm going to say it's a bad movie, because it's not. It, it does not make it a bad movie at all. Yeah. And I would be <laughs> lying through my teeth. Yeah. Um... <laughs> I, I will say, like, regarding Dumbledore, and then I'll say my last words on Prisoner of Azkaban and we can move on, but um, my, uh, uh, regarding Dumbledore, as much as I miss Richard Harris, and as much as I think that we lost something great with Richard Harris, some of the some of the ways that Dumbledore's character transforms and some of the the ways that the tone shifts overall over the rest of the series, I think I think Michael Gambon does better as he goes on than uh, than yes. Richard Harris probably would have with some of the transformations in regarding uh, Dumbledore. Because in the first two movies, them being kids' movies and uh, Richard Harris being who he is as Dumbledore, Dumbledore is very much like Santa Claus. 
And then in the in the rest of the movies, yeah. he kind of has to transform into okay. Now I'm like I'm I'm large and in charge. You like here, like you, you gotta you gotta do what I say, and I'm doing all of this stuff to actually try to protect the the students. Um. Although there's a, there's a certain wonderment to watching Santa Claus get pissed <laughs> off. <laughs> yes, <laughs> but uh, you know, like I do I do. Uh, I, I find that there that Gambon does excellent in his own right as as things go on, and I think I think Harris probably couldn't have managed to do the same kind of performance as well as uh, Gambon did. And the last things I want to say about the about uh, Prisoner of Azkaban is it also has some of my favorite moments in the entire series. For instance, when the the Dementors come in on the train at the start, that is one of the creepiest moments in any film, and they are pretty damn terrifying. And I love the way that Quaron uh, depicts them. And of course, my yeah. favorite moment in any of the movies is uh, Harry's great moment of Expecto Patronum, which was ah. Uh, just beautiful and built up to perfectly and it it just works all of it works (laughs) absolutely the frozen lake sequence is one of the best so and i will say they couldn't have found a better serious black and they couldn't have found a better remus lupin than uh than gary oldman and david thulis exactly so the casting director really does really earn their pet earned his her or the casting directors earned their pay yeah. for that movie. Because <laughs> that was some great casting. It Indeed it was. <sighs> but that's all I have to say about Azkaban. And if you don't have anything else to to say, no. then uh, shall we move on to your worst or your best? Which, which would you like to do? Oh, I don't know, Steve. I'll let you pick. I'll let you pick this mm. one, Steve. Well... Let's go into your worst, and why don't we talk about the one that I probably would have chosen if you hadn't, Harry Potter. Yeah, because agreeing agreeing on this show is getting yeah. <laughs> let's let's go um, on to uh, Harry Potter and the Half Blood Prince. Why don't we? Yes, let's. Now, I do want to say because I always I always specify this, and this is one of the things I wanted to do as I did with your movie when I asked you why it was your least favorite Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince is my least favorite because it is the most egregiously adapted of the books there is so much left out from the book that it's not even it's not the same source but it, it's not you're not watching the book that you read that you read it's like watching the modernized version of the Great Gatsby that had Leonardo DiCaprio and Jay Z music. It's it's a it's it's an adaptation with only the, the slightest resemblance to the source material. That being said, much also like the Great Gatsby with Leonardo DiCaprio, it is a lot of fun to look at because it has the without a doubt best cinematography in the entire series and what always gets me in this movie and I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna 
harp on this for one second before I say why it's go back to why it's bad because it's going to sound a lot <laughs> like pandering to this movie which I love and I love it but when it really hits you that this is the best cinematography of the series is when Harry is running through the field chasing Bellatrix the the look of of the moonlight just very faint yeah. hitting the wheat and the and the grass and it running it the Harry's motions like knocking the wheat over and it the the whole look of it, I'm stuttering <laughs> over myself because I don't I I've talked about this so much but it's so it's just beautiful to look at and it's beautifully shot beautifully lit and it's 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 very crisp and clear it's not like that stupid episode of game of thrones where oh well this is a night war so we're going to just shoot it in pitch black <laughs> and sorry if you can't see anything but we're doing it faithfully no this is doing it faithfully doing harry potter like that and shooting it with that kind of lighting that's doing it faithfully so faithful to the spirit and tone of the book as being incredibly dark and something wicked this way comes referencing ask a prisoner ask yes absolutely in terms of faithfulness to the book absolutely not we we lose the battle of hogwarts which is a perfect prequel to the battle of hogwarts in the eighth movie which would have been the battle of hogwarts in the eighth movie we lose the the use of felix felicus in the movie aside from it being used all at once to get the the memory from slughorn yep. um we there's so there's so much that's lost we lose all the quidditch now all the quidditch is gone and that's some of the best sequencing you'll ever see except for the fact that you see ron knocking the goals away every time. And you have almost no use of the uh almost no use. They they just out of nowhere start pointing their wands and those spells come out. There's no discussion of the studying of how to cast spells using only your mind and thinking the spell. And how Septumsempra was that easy of a spell to use when it came to thinking it there's no discussion of that at all and that's a huge part of the books and a part of in in the, in the world in the Harry Potter world wizarding development so there's a lot to take issue with when it comes to this movie and it being adapted um we get very little Ginny Harry romance which finally kicks back up again and and there's really no fallout for Harry after the death of Sirius Black there's very little of that mentioned at all except for the fact that it just happened in the last movie and now it's kind of there whereas it should have been more like us in I'll reference another movie here a Spider-Man far from home thing where Tony Stark is kind of everywhere in his mind and on the ground and like painted everywhere on the street Harry should have had a there should have been a lot more of the the series black moments in his memory and in his just like looking through pictures and talking with other members of the yeah. order of the phoenix it should have been a lot more present it wasn't really fleshed out and and that's why i have a, a big issue with this movie and its adaptation steve Roy well Prince. hmm i think you said a, a good chunk of it um i <laughs> yeah 
Well, well, it's, I mean, I was talking for about 25 minutes. No, that's time, cool. Like, so, yeah. I definitely agree on the cinematography for the most part. Like, uh, I, I do very much love um, the cinematography in Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban, but this uh, Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince was nominated for Best Cinematography at the Academy Awards, yeah, well, and it was nominated for a reason. One of the few things. Yeah. Right. <laughs> at least it was nominated. Oh man, I don't even know what it lost to. Uh, but um, uh, it was the 82nd Academy Awards, so 2010 Oscars, and the film came out in 2009. Best Cinematography, Avatar won. What the heck? Avatar yeah. won yeah. <laughs> Best Cinematography. Yeah. Anyway, um, the guy who did the cinematography, his name is Bruno Del Bonnell. Uh, he also ended, he later did the cinematography for Inside Lewin Davis and uh, some other films that are not all that great but he seems to have worked with the uh with the coen brothers several times and it, he seems to be doing pretty dang good um i will say that uh half-blood prince is uh is probably the most beautiful of the the most beautiful looking of the uh of the films but i just there's so many problems that i have with it in terms of just like faltering from the plot on multiple occasions and without any kind of valid reason for it and it just doesn't gel well with me and uh it's it's hard to it's hard to, for me to describe without like reiterating all the stuff that you said <laughs> but um <laughs> i don't know it's eh can I say like nah I've, I've lost it I just I just completely blanked on a thought right there <laughs> I, had, I had it I was like okay this is gonna be good this is formulating in my mind nope it's gone <laughs> god dang it my brain has failed me you have failed me for the last time no um yes now you're gonna get a lobotomy <laughs> uh I think the best thing that this film does is the impact of the death of Dumbledore. Yeah. Um, and not just the impact, but I think the scene itself is done very well. It's the way that Snape says it is, is very quiet, but heavy. And, uh, it's, and, and watching Dumbledore fall, uh, fall all that way is just, it gives you time to really take in that moment. And that I think is the best directed sequence in the entire film. And other than that, there's not much else that's notable for me about it is I, I would rank this as one of the, one of the more forgettable films of the, uh, the Harry Potter franchise. Yeah. I, I would agree with that, at least in terms of, of yeah. quality of, of adaptation. I mean, it's very... There are two things that I need in a, in a movie. I can take one or the other. If I get both, it's fantastic. But in this one, I only basically got one. I'll take either great cinematography or great film editing, and it'll be one of my favorite movies of the year. I only got great cinematography, but it was still, for me, and especially in the flashback scenes between Dumbledore and, Vol and young Voldemort, those two, those were also wonderful to look at. So for me, 
it's, it, it will always be memorable for those things and for the, the, the wheat field sequence. But um, absolutely, I 100% agree from you. Aside, with you. Aside from the scene of Dumbledore's death, completely mm. forgettable. And uh, with that, unfortunately, we're going to move on because I don't want to hit the, I don't <laughs> hit the hour mark. So, <laughs> so we're going to move on to my favorites, which are the Deathly Hollows movies. Um, but if, if we're picking one, I'm going to go here with Harry Potter and the Deathly Hollows, part one. That was. I just want to say that was uh, that was an interesting little transfer that you had in the middle of the word there. It, it sounded like you were starting to say two, and then you go two one, one. <laughs> oh, it was. That's oh, okay. What I was doing. I was. I was. I was leaning into two, but I'm like, <laughs> no, it's one. I, I wanted to lead you that way and then switch it. Kind of like a misdirect of Snape yeah. and turning it to Quirrell. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> uh, and here's why. The first and, and, and best comparison I can make is what you told me about Infinity War. And that Endgame was a, a great culmination of things and... I think it was you. It might have been Mill. I think it was me. I, think it was I, I, I prefer movie. Infinity War to Endgame by a, by a long shot. Yes, exactly. This is what I'm saying. You, you found Endgame to be a fantastic culmination and certainly a good movie that you enjoyed and had a, a lot of great moments. But Infinity War was the superior yep. film for you and also had great moments and other things. And in a lot of ways, and I do want to say this right now, right off the top, uh, of my of this segment towards the end is that Avengers Infinity War and Endgame stole a lot of its plot from Harry <laughs> Potter and the Deathly Hallows. Um, not the movie, yeah. the book. And what I say that, I mean, number one, there's a whole lot of death mm-hmm. in the first half. And then in the second half, there's a metric crap ton of reinforcements that just comes in out of nowhere because they're fed up and they're finally done taking it lying down. And we don't get that sequence in Deathly Hollows Part 2. Instead, we get the Death Eaters running away because Voldemort didn't kill Harry. And why Deathly Hollows Part 2 is not my favorite is specifically because of that sequence. What they did to that sequence of Harry's dead, no he's not, will forever be the biggest slap in the face to all Harry Potter fans everywhere. It was a great, great movie and then that happens. We don't get the sequence of all the parents and siblings and cousins and families coming charging in and apparating out of nowhere and just starting to bring the fight straight to Voldemort and we don't get Grot come thundering down from the Forbidden Forest like, yo, you mess with my brother, I'm gonna kill you myself. And there's a pretty awesome moment in the book. We don't get that, and it's awful. So aside from that being bad, every other piece of part two is fantastic, but moreover, Deathly Hallows part one is the heart and soul of the Deathly Hallows movies. All of the tragedy happens the beginning of the adventure happens in finding Horcruxes and finding out who R.A.B. is and finding out where some of the other Horcruxes are. 
you get this start you get right off the top and why this was a deleted scene I'll never know this emotional goodbye between Harry and Aunt Petunia and even before that you get this really devastating moment of Hermione knowing she has to wipe her parents memory because the muggles are now in danger of Voldemort and you get this incredibly just devastating heartbreaking moment of Hermione wiping her parents memory and leaving and you see her photo vanish her, her face vanish from all the photos and she's in tears walking out the door and then Aunt Petunia's in tears walking out her door and you get this again a deleted scene an emotional goodbye between Dudley yeah. and Harry and Dudley saying I don't think you're a waste of space and all of this is just in the first three and a half minutes of the movie and then it, it gets even more emotional you I will I will forever credit the Deathly Hollows part one with giving Hedwig the death she deserved in the book she's just in the cage and she gets accidentally hit in the movie she gets a yeah. hero's death and she dies saving saving Harry and it's it's devastating and beautiful and this time Harry's the one trying to save Hagrid rather than Hagrid saving Harry on the motorbike which was Sirius's by the way but they never mentioned that in the first in any of the movies um you get uh Dobby's death which was devastating and beautifully done too after a really comical moment of Dobby did not want to kill only meant to maim or yeah. seriously injure and it's it's hysterical and it's, then it turns into this really heartbreaking moment again you get the wonderful animated sequence of death and the brother three brothers there's so much in this movie that's emotional but it's not emotional and it's it's not it's not emotional and milked for emotions it's emotional and it's well done it's it's emotional because it's so well done and so faithful and because these actors have finally after all these years we we've, we've we've gotten to know them as these characters we got to know them who they were by the fourth movie and by the seventh movie we're all pretty comfortable knowing who they are and we've never even seen Hermione's parents in the movies at this point. And that is the most heartbreaking scene because we know who Hermione is and because Emma Watson does such a great job as her. We know how horrible the Dursleys are, but we never really think about it. We'll go back to your movie here real quick of of Azkaban. That Petunia never once said a word about her sister in front of Marge. And when Marge started verbally assaulting her sister, she just sat there and looked completely like, why do I have to listen to this? And Vernon sat there and was like, you got to stop Marge, like really. And nobody said anything mm-hmm. to Harry when he when he flipped out. Nobody said anything to him except for Marge because she was just sadistic. So you finally get this culminating moment of Petunia having the emotional connection with Harry of that was my sister. and i might have thought she was a freak and we might have had our issues but that's still my sister so there's a whole range of things to love in this movie and people overlook it 
because it was the second last movie and everybody just wants to see the Batman yeah. Apocalypse. <laughs> and in my opinion, they completely dropped the ball on the second half of the Batman Apocalypse. That'll just that'll forever be my opinion. I think it was a horrible waste of a, of, of a movie to do it that way. Have Harry just jump out of Hagrid's arms and run and not have every parent and relative come flying in. That was that was that was such a missed opportunity. And that's why I think Deathly Hallows Part 1 is the best movie because it hits all the emotional moments and it's well done. It's not milked, it hits the chords because it's well done. It's not emotion right. for emotion's sake. Well. Yeah, I think that about wraps it up. No. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, actually, I, I do agree with you. I do prefer part one to part two. The thing I, the the issue I have with part two is, it's a similar issue that I have with Endgame, but like, it, it has to do with pacing. I think part one of these kinds of movies where things are split up, I think that part one is better paced, and yeah. It was. Yeah, like both Infinity War and Deathly Hollows Part One, I think they kicked along really well, and it's it's a lot of build up, but I like the build up because maybe this is a more of a mental thing, but like I just I like the build up more, and the reason I think it's a mental thing is like you know in your head when something's building up, you can imagine it as being better in the payoff than the payoff can actually be, and so. Uh, you know, when you're watching Infinity War, the the image in your head after Infinity War where Thanos has won and it's like, oh my god, how are they going to come back from this? The image in your head of, like, how they do it is better than what they actually do to beat Thanos. Similarly, like you were saying, the, the build-up to the Battle of Hogwarts is better than the way that it's uh it's better imaged in your head than uh, than it actually turns out on film, and I think that's because the build-up does such a great job. And Deathly Hallows Part One is all build-up, and this is kind of an issue. I this is kind of a problem actually that I have with with movies being split up. Uh, it's it's hard to say whether whether uh, Deathly Hallows was split up more for profit reasons or for story reasons. I. It's probably more for profit reasons because, you know, two movies, two sources of uh, revenue. But also the thing about the Deathly Hollows is it's such it's such a massive story and everything comes together. Yeah, everything from like every previous book comes together in such a way as to be important. So it's really difficult to cut stuff out. So, yeah, so I, I find it difficult to see how they could fit it into one movie. So... That's why. That's why I, I I never had a problem with them splitting it up. Yeah. I never thought of it. I mean, there's of course going to be a, a yeah, of financial course. aspect, but it's the entirety of this of this series, whether or not it was actually accurate in terms of adaptation, is that they were accurate at least in spirit of what the book was trying to convey. Was Half Blood Prince accurate by what was no. in the book? Absolutely not. Was it accurate by the tone you felt reading it? One hundred and ten percent. It was dark. It was hard to watch. Everything was like, "What's going to come next around that corner?" And you yeah. got that from watching the movie. And I agree with that. However, the issue I have with it is you get one movie that's all build up with very little payoff, and then the second movie right. is 
trying to do all payoff but with no build up and so it, it just it's it's weird to me and it doesn't flow as well that said uh i think that the build up is better than the payoff for deathly hollows um i don't know how different i don't i don't know how I, yep. it, how my impression would change if they somehow managed to cram it all into one movie or if you just watch them back to back as one movie but uh the the way that uh, Deathly Hollows Part One ends with Voldemort on top of his game and all that, I think it works really dang well, and it has the more emotional moments in it. I think. That said, Deathly Hollows Part Two had some of the most satisfying moments. Like one of my favorites being the um, the fight between Mrs. Weasley and uh, Bellatrix. Beautiful yes, fight, and it's 100%. perfectly done. That is yeah. my favorite part of the entire series. This poor woman, had, she's been so... And I'm just going to briefly talk about this and then I'll move on and finish it up here. But this woman is so kind and so loving and loves everybody and was always trying to keep out of fights and stop fights and like, no, you can't fight. And then someone goes after her daughter and she just watched her son die. Another son lost a year earlier. She had a bunch of friends die. Harry almost died. And she's yeah. like, no, 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 no. No, no, no. Now I'm done. Yeah. Now you're done pissing me <laughs> off. <laughs> and I thought that was really, yeah. really funny. And I will just, I will end with, with a, a couple of things. The first I will say is that Alexandra Desplat did possibly the best job scoring this series mm -hmm. since John Williams started it. Um, I think his overall score is superior to John Williams' score, except for the Hogwarts, the, the Harry Potter theme that we all grew up and learned to love. I think that will forever be the iconic piece. But through Deathly Hollows, his music is maybe the, be the best piece of music of that entire year, of those two years. That would be number one. Number two, um, just more on Deathly Hollows Part Two, real quick. Um, I found that another thing that they completely gave it a disservice to was Snape. Snape's payoff was confined to about five or six minutes rather than a whole 20 minute look back at everything he went through and where he came from and spelling it all out. They could have afforded another 15 minutes of movie. It's not like they were at the two and a half hour mark. They were at like two hours and 10 minutes. They could have extended it a little bit more to give, in my opinion, Alan Rickman a little more of a shot at winning what should have been his Oscar to lose that year because of who Alan Rickman is as an actor, number one, but also because how of how Snape was written in the book. That's number two. Number three, a disservice was done to Harry's character because and Voldemort's character because they have a great scene in the Great Hall where they're just facing off against each other and they're talking to each other like this is the end one of us is going to die but they're having this real like emotional heated conversation and they completely wipe that out for this stupid flying through the air we're going to hit the castle walls crumble the ceiling a little bit I don't know what that was about and then finally I, I will just culminate with I do think that Deathly Hollows Part 1 will forever be the culmination of the entire series because it's 
been nothing but Harry Potter escaping bad times every time when people near him dying to like protect him or, or dying just around him. And this is like the one time where bad stuff doesn't just happen to Harry. Like, I know that Cedric died and it was bad stuff for Cho and Amos Diggory, but but Sirius died. That was bad for him. His parents died. That was bad for him. Ginny was kidnapped. That was bad for him and Ron. Uh, Dumbledore dies. That was bad for him, primarily. And there's McGonagall, too. But, but in this movie, you have Dobby dying. You have... You have Moody dying. You have... Uh, Hermione wiping memories. You have Molly's constant fear that everybody's going to die. You have Lupin having to worry about his, his his newborn baby coming up, which they didn't really touch, but they still meant they still hinted to it, so you kind of know it's coming. There's so much bad that goes wrong for everybody else that it's no longer the Harry Potter show. It's this doesn't just affect you, Harry. This is about all of us. And never was that made so clear than when Ron literally said that to him. Yeah. In that movie. This is not just about you. This is about all of us. So stop being so egotistical. Get back in the house. We're doing it together. You're not going out on your own. This ain't all about you. And I think that's probably the most emotionally satisfying moment of the entire movie. When Ron basically tells Harry to stop being so egotistical, even though it's like a a kind kind of egotistical, like he doesn't want people dying for him. It's like, this isn't for you. This is because pe- this is because Voldemort's a bad guy. This ain't about you. This is about mm. all of us. So shut up. So that is that is my last monologue of the day. Um, I talked <laughs> a lot more today than I meant to. I'm really sorry about that. Uh, but uh, Harry Potter is one of my favorites. Understandable. So. <laughs> yes. But I think that's where we're. So I'm truly sorry about that. <laughs> it's okay, Steve. <laughs> uh, well, you know, I think. I think that's a pretty good place to to call it a podcast on. Yes. Absolutely. Steve, thank you for, for uh, joining me for the 30 <laughs> seconds you were able to speak today. <laughs> well, <laughs> don't worry. I'll probably go on at, like for the entire hour and give you all of five words to say at some point in the future. <laughs> okay. Next week, we'll plan on that. Yeah. <laughs> We'll plan on getting right. even that way. <laughs> All right. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for listening. Um...